Well, we've entered a new year. 2024 is, for me, a very significant year. For in February of this year, we will be celebrating our 40th anniversary of coming to Pine Bush in 1984. Hard to believe we've been here for 40 years. Now, maybe thought after 40 years, what more can you say? I know people in ministry that have said after two, three years, I've told every, I've told the people everything I, I know, and so I got to move on to another place and I guess preach the same old sermons, and that's that's a pity, because I mean when you think about it, we're dealing with the eter- the eternal truth of a of an infinite in, 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 an infinite being, um, which we can't ever exhaust the fullness of divine revelation. We can never say the final word. We never can say, well, this is the last thing we could say on this passage. Because there's always more to be seen and always more to be shared and always more to be known. And so I come into 2024 with the sense there's plenty more in 24. That's terrible, isn't it? But no, I'm not someone who's great in slogans and such. I think the last thing I did was the autos of 2002. I think plenty more in 24 is not a bad aspiration. There's plenty more to be said. There's plenty more to be seen. There's plenty more to be studied. There's plenty more to be shared. There's plenty more to be shown in our teaching and our living as we seek to show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. light. So I hope it is helpful to say let's commit ourselves to the idea at least, if not the slogan, not just the slogan, but the idea behind it of seeking plenty more in 2024. Because we're a people that are really called to traffic in realities that are not meager, they're not scarce, they're, they're big, they're huge, they're large, they're plentiful. And we sing of plentiful grace, with thee is found, grace to cover all my sins. We think of the plentiful, the abundant, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Um, who can show forth his praises? Who can tell forth all of the riches that are bound up in him? Uh, the plentiful blessings that we have as God's people. And it's, no, it's no surprise that the Apostle Paul in his letters is constantly referring to, uh, to the need to, to move on to greater and greater aspirations. He speaks of the Thessalonians. They love one another. They're taught of God to love one another. And yet he says, and yet, I beseech you, I, I, I call upon you to abound more and more. Again and again, he's using language like that. More and more. We shouldn't be satisfied with what we've attained to. Yes, we should live in the light of what we've attained to, but we don't even do that, do we? We know so much more than we ever perform. We know so much more than we ever do. If we were able to somehow live up to all we know, what a great blessing that would be. But yet, we shouldn't even end there. We should aspire to more and more. The recognition for us as God's people, the, the, the best is still yet to come. We look to the future with great hope and great confidence 
that the greatest things that we have ever experienced as God's people, uh, we know in part only of those things now. Him, when he, he was perfect has come, what a blessing it will be to know him even as we are known. Well, to help us, to assist us in sounding this note for the coming year, for this theme of seeking, seeing, saying, sharing, showing, plenty more in 2024, I want to begin in the month of January by studying together this 19th Psalm, Psalm 19. I want to read it to you, and then I want to say something about it, and then I want to look to introduce it a bit this morning, and we'll have more to say about it in the coming weeks. But Psalm 19, again, I read it, but I want to read it again. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Strong metaphors that are used to proclaim what is seen in the creation itself of the glory and consistency and, and, and the, the, the wondrous attributes of, of, this, of the God who created the world and all things that are in it. Verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. No less a writer than C.S. Lewis said of the 19th Psalm, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. He saw it as, incom uh, as incomparable poetry. The greatest lyric in all the world is also, as well as the greatest poem to be found in the Psalter. Another writer by the name of Gerald Wilson, he says, this Psalm is an awe-filled description of the cosmic self-revelation of God through his creative acts and his gracious instruction in the Torah. Hebrew word for the law or instruction. Spurgeon, writing of these two great sources of revelation, the creative acts of God and his revealed will in the Torah, in the word, he said he is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them both of these books my father wrote them both 
But the psalm does even more than propose to us two books of Revelation. It speaks of the benefits or the good that these books, when read and appropriated, are designed to do for us. There are salutary good benefits that come from humble, careful, prayerful, an ever-growing, ever-expanding appreciation of the God who speaks to us through his word and through his world. When I was a young Christian, there were a couple of books that were written early on in my Christian experience. One was called Knowing God, written by J.I. Packer. And it was a real attempt to give something of a popular distillation of basic theology concerning who God is. And it was really a wonderful read, a memorable book, and it still holds up today. It's still being printed and published. And then someone else came along, and he wrote a book, and taking the path of Packer's title, he called his work Knowing Scripture. So early on in my Christian experience, I learned that, well, these are two areas of knowledge. I need to know as much as I can about God and know as much as I can about his word and of course it's in his word that we have the fine tuning of our knowledge of God whatever his creation reveals about God it, it is never perfect and certainly in our sinful minds it always needs correction the heavens declare his glory yes the firmament shows forth his handiwork and yet people look at the creation and make all the wrong conclusions and they draw inferences that God never designed and uh, Paul speaks of the creation manifesting the deity of God that shows forth his wisdom and his power. And he says, it's that they may be without excuse. Because knowing God, knowing him from general revelation, from the world book, he goes on to say, they did not glorify him as God, neither gave him thanks, but became vain in their reasonings, and their foolish heart was darkened. And certainly we need the word and we need redemption in Christ through the word to bring us to repent of our false notions, our idolatrous ideas, and come to know God in truth. But knowing God and knowing scripture and knowing the blessings that derive from knowing God, from the knowledge of God and from the knowledge of scripture, is really at the heart of what we should be desiring. It's really at the heart of what we should be seeking as the people of the living God, to know his word, to desire his word, to be transformed by his word. It's at the very heart of the concern of the psalmist who penned the words of Psalm 19 and should be in our hearts as the working propositions of the things we seek to achieve in the coming year as God's people. Now my introductory study this morning about this psalm We'll say much about it in coming weeks, but this morning is just simply to say something about its location in the book of the Psalms. The Psalm, the 19th Psalm, um, is located where it is for a reason. I think it has a, a purpose. It's not placed here haphazardly, but there are reasons it's found where it is in the book. And then I want to say something about its internal unity. So we're going to say something about the psalm and its relationship to its neighboring psalms, the psalms that are close nearby, 
and then say something about the parts of the psalm itself, the three stanzas that I read in your hearing, uh, to one another. So we're going to look externally to other psalms first in terms of location, and then look internally at the psalm itself in terms of its relationship of its parts to one another. Let's begin with the location. Psalm 19 is in the first book of the Psalms. You know the Psalms have the five books. This is book one. And it's in the first collection of David's Psalms. You know, there are several places where there are David's Psalms that are collected together and put together in the book of the Psalms. Psalm 3 to Psalm 41 is basically a collection of David's Psalms. They all pretty much begin with the words a psalm of David, or a David psalm. Now, the relationship of the preposition in the Hebrew to David's name, uh, we don't know precisely. We know that some of these psalms in some of these places could not have been written by David. They're still written in times, for instance, when the temple existed. And David was not the one that built the temple. Solomon, his son, did. And there are some of them that are written in the times when the people were taken into exile into Babylon. And that certainly was well past the period of David's reign. But yet it all pertains to David. Because it all pertains to God as king. And God's purpose and will to establish his kingdom upon this earth through a king after his own heart. Through an agent who he, through whom he will work establishing his kingdom in Israel through David the king, and ultimately, of course, we know through the greater son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God comes into this world. Jesus came proclaiming what? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it's at hand in the person of heaven's king. Whereas he who was born king of the Jews, Jesus is the heaven-sent king of Israel, and he comes to be born into this world to do what needed to be done to bring us back to God, to reconcile us to God, to die this death our sins deserved, to be raised in power and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, where he reigns as king over all things, having all authority in heaven and on earth. And all this gets anticipated by David the king. David's the model. David's the type. David is the king through whom we see the greater king, our Lord Jesus himself. So as we read the David Psalms, we'll see there's a number of them that are quoted in the New Testament with reference to Jesus. Psalm 22, for instance, in this collection here, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Are the very words that Jesus spoke when he died upon the cross, paying the price for our sins. But this first collection of David's Psalms begins in Psalm 3, and when you come to the first to the 14th Psalm, and you just read them consecutively. I've done it, and I'll suggest that you do it. You know what you're going to find highlighted over and over and over again? Enemies, adversaries, foes, those who rage against the king, against the Lord, of course, in Psalm 2, against his king, David, in Psalm 3. O Lord, how are my foes? How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Distress from what? For the many who say, we will, um, um, who will show us any good? Uh, there are people looking to undermine David's faith. 
his confidence in God, his joy in his God, his obedience to his God. They're looking to put him in fear. They're looking to destroy his reign over his people. And when you look at these Psalms again and again and again, you will see that the focus is really upon these foes. It's enemy-centered. And David cries unto his God for deliverance from his adversaries, deliverance from these enemies. But with the 15th Psalm, the focus changes. The focus changes. Psalm 15 to 24 say, I won't say nothing, but very, very little about the enemies. These psalms all seem to focus upon the psalmist God. Psalm 15.1 O Yahweh, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? Psalm 16 Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Instead of looking at all the evil he has from his enemies, he sees all the good he has in his God. As for the saints that are in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Instead of fearing the enemy, he delights in those who delight in God. He's encouraged in the realities given to him by the Lord. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. You have a beautiful inheritance. And you go on through the Psalms. You see, again and again and again, God is his God. God is his helper. God is the one whom he can approach. God is the one in whom he trusts. God is the one who delivers him and vindicates him. God is the one who gives triumph for him. These are the themes that come before us again and again and again. But then the other thing that's interesting about these neighboring psalms is that on both sides of Psalm 19, I just mentioned the things you find in 15, 16, 17, and 18. On the other side, you have corresponding themes that come. Kind of like you're mounting a hill. I just presented this in the Sunday school as I tried to give something of a pre-introduction to the introduction we're doing now in the Sunday school. It's kind of like mounting up a hill and then you come from the other side and you see on the other side things that correspond to the points of ascent that you've already made. And on the other side, you have corresponding things. Again, Psalm 14, I'm sorry, 15. Psalm 15 had this matter of who shall sojourn in your tent and who shall dwell on your holy hill. And then in Psalm 24, it really is the very same thing. Scholars tend to call it the entrance psalms. They're the psalms that speak of approaching God, entrance into his worship, entrance into his tabernacle, into his presence. Uh, You see it in uh, Psalm 24. And verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Very same issues that are dealt with in Psalm 24. Approaching God. How we can approach him. And what basis? What are the qualifications? What are the requirements of our approaching him? Are there in Psalm 15 and in Psalm 24. Psalm 16 that speaks of God being his portion, his inheritance. 
the one in whom he takes his joy, in whom he takes his delight, in whom he trusts. Psalm 23, on the other side, tells of our trust in the God who provides green pastures and leads us beside the still waters, who restores our soul, who leads us in righteousness for his namesake, the God who is the shepherd of his people, as well as the host who provides a table in the presence of his enemies and anoints our head with oil so that our cup overflows. You didn't see the, the correlation between the concerns of Psalm 16 of the fullness of divine provision. You maintain my lot. I have this wonderful inheritance. I have this joyful reality in the presence of God in whom there is his presence there's fullness of joy. Certainly there's fullness of joy in Psalm 23 as we consider the God to whom goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So you have entrance to God's presence. You have trust in God's provisions and His grace that meet us on either side. Then you have in Psalm 18, this very lengthy psalm, it's the longest one of all, and it's the one that speaks of God in the midst of all of the trials and troubles, who is the one who is the strength of his people, and the helper of his people, and ultimately the one who vindicates his people from all of the afflictions and trials and troubles an evil and wicked world will set upon us. God is the one who gives salvation to his king, who is the one who subdues peoples under him, who delivers him from his enemies. Look at uh, verse 46 that concludes Psalm 18. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock. Exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yea, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. Again, in the previous Psalms, it's all fear of those enemies. It's all crippling fear. Lord, help me in the midst of my adversaries. Bring me out of this darkness. Bring me into light. Bring me out of this narrow, constricted place. Bring me into a broad place. Now, it's all been achieved. Victory has been won. The establishment of God's goodness has been realized. And vindication from all the troubles and trials of life have been achieved. And so you have in Psalm 22, the sufferer who suffers the words of Jesus from the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? All that the wicked world could do to God's people, all the wicked world did to God's Son. God vindicates his servant. God is the one who brings his servant out of that darkness into light, who delivers, in verse 20, his soul from the sword, his precious life from the power of the dog, and hence... There is that word of exaltation that concludes the psalm. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. The sufferer now comes to lead God's people in worship, even as Jesus does. Jesus who suffered for us now lives for us. And as we enter into God's presence, he draws near. Where two or three are gathered together in his name, and he's present in our worship. And not just seeing what we're doing, but leading us in worship in a real sense. It's not the pastor, it's not the choir leader, it's not the worship leader that leads God's people in worship. It's the presence of Jesus leading us in worship. You who fear the Lord, praise him. O offspring of Jacob, glorify him. For he's not despised or poured the affliction of the affliction of the afflicted. He's not hidden his face from him. He's heard when he cried to him, then from you comes my praise in the great congregation. And so God is the God who helps his afflicted people, vindicates his afflicted people, brings them out of their trials, brings them into plenty and abundance, brings them out of lamentation into 
praise. And then the final note that sounded in, I think I jumped ahead. Well, the vindication actually is in 17, the victory is in chapter 18. Forget what I said. You read it yourself. You see the correlation between 17 and 22, and then 18, where the victory is finally achieved. I'm sorry, I got that I got that wrong because I wasn't looking at my notes. I was looking at I was looking at you on the Zoom um, on my on my camera. Anyway, um, my point is there's correlation, and there's correlation that brings us to see the importance of entrance into His presence, trust in His provision, vindication from all wrong, and triumph in His might and his sufficiency. And right in the middle of that constellation of concerns, of approach, trust, vindication, and triumph, we find this 19th Psalm. How do we know we have access to this God? If this God has not condescended to meet us in his word, to speak to us with his voice, to counsel us with his counsel, to guide us with his truth. It's the fact that God is a revealing God, a God who speaks to his people, that gives us that basis of knowledge of the pathway of approach to him. And it's his word that moves us from just simple basis upon which we make our approach to where we come to trust him. Part of what God's word does is it builds us up in a life of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's God's word that gives us joy and peace in believing. It's God's word that meets us in our distress in our affliction, in our troubles. And it brings us with the knowledge that our God is with us, not detached from us, not apart from us. But he doesn't say he's going to exempt us from struggles. He's not going to exempt us from troubles. He's not going to exempt us from affliction. But he'll always be with us in affliction. His presence will guide us. His presence will lead us through. He will vindicate us. We are in his hands. And we can be confident. And then in the midst of all of the troubles and trials and struggles of the world, the pinnacle note is not just we get by, but we get by triumphantly. We get by victoriously. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, Paul says, in all of the troubles of life, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's because this psalm puts the spotlight upon God and his word upon knowing him and knowing the things he has made known to us in his word these realities are given substance these realities are given form these realities are given certainty into the hearts and lives of God's people and so we're going to see these words in terms not just of theoretical knowledge well we know scripture we know Bible verses you know, so many people just say, well, just read this, or just know this, or just memorize this, and just take your little Bible pill for the day, and everything's going to be well. No, the point of God's Word is this Word gives us understanding in these realities, in the way of approach, in the way of trust, in the way of vindication, in the way of victory. So we're going to be looking at this psalm 
in terms of its neighbor psalms and how God's word and how God that God's speaking in his creation and the knowledge of God that we attain even in the midst of general revelation lends itself to God's people being ever confident in who we are as God's people called to approach called to trust knowing our vindication and knowing our victory through him who loved us so I want to set that out to you in terms of the way in which this psalm is central to this whole constellation of psalms one of the beautiful things about the book of the psalms is that it's not put together haphazardly it's not a word that's given to us in just no relationship of these poems to one another there is an actual flow of the book of the Psalms that we should be taking note of as we read this book. Again, it's an overall picture of the way in which God's king comes to triumph. David, it's David's book. And he is the type of that great and perfect king who ultimately brings the kingdom of God amongst men. And I don't want to go into the big picture of the way it flows together, but it does. It does. So don't just be content to say, well, I've read my psalm for the day in isolation. You'll get a lot from that. I'm not saying don't do that. Read the psalms in isolation, fine. But understand there's, there's more when we see them in terms of their neighboring psalms. And we see, see, seek to know that each psalm does have a place in the whole fabric of divine revelation for the benefit of God's people. So that's what I have to say about location. Let's move on. Let's say something about its unity. Now, I don't know if you picked it up in the reading in just the English version, but the reading of the psalm itself, it seems as if different psalms were kind of spliced together. You have this great poem of the first six verses that speaks of God's knowledge in creation. And it is an elaborate production. It's something that just uses metaphor upon metaphor upon metaphor. The creation is God's handiwork. The sky above um, is his handiwork of pouring out speech, revealing knowledge. Uh, silently, every voice, every language hears what God's word declares. And then he gives this picture of the sun running a race. The sun like a strong man coming out of its bedchamber in the morning with the sunrise, then making its way through the course of the heavens until it sets at the end of the day. Nothing hidden from its heat, making its circuit from one end of the heavens to the other. That's indeed why I think C.S. Lewis was just impressed with the poetic nature of this. This is astounding poetry. This is metaphor-filled. This is something that sends the mind to reeling and sends the mind to wonderment. And then we come down to very simple statements that follow. Very simple statements, all like staccato statements, one after another. The Lord of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Precept of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. And then you have seven of these statements about the nature of God's law and what the law of God does. And it seems so different. It seems so like in another world, just in terms of the style of its writing. So some people say, well, it can't possibly have been authored by the same person. Well, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Maybe somebody put it together and they believed it belonged together. That there's a unity that is to be found here. And then it goes on to speak about the way in which this word that we know about, because we know the God who created the heavens, the God who reveals himself in everything that he has made, 
was listening to a, so- a song that Bob Dylan did in the days of his Christian experience. I don't know, that didn't last more than three albums, but it lasted for three albums. And in the last one of them, he has this song about every grain of sand and hearing his, uh, 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 just being filled with awe of, of the, uh, of the uh, every leaf uh, and every grain of sand. Uh, he, I hear the Master's hand in, in every leaf that trembles and in every grain of sand. And that's something of the picture of a God who makes himself known in the works of his hands. But yet that knowledge that he gives of himself, that we know his deity, we know his power, we know that this is the God with whom we have to do, comes to us as a redemptive word, as a covenant word, as a saving word that comes to us in scripture and, to, and, and brings forgiveness and brings warning and brings a knowledge of our error, brings the hope of reward. It brings a way in which we can fashion our lives so that the words of our mouth as well as the meditation of our heart would become acceptable in his sight. That these are not separate poems. They're brought together for a purpose. It's God's knowledge and God's word that has these beneficial, these salutary effects in the lives of those who study the scriptures. So we don't study scripture just for Bible knowledge. And that's important, I think, to have Bible knowledge. We need to know God's word. But don't end there. How is it benefiting you? How is it being realized in practical ways of bringing delight and joy and hope and uh, conformity to Christ and conformity to God's will and ways? Are we contentious to know it? Is we contentious to have an expanding theological brain or is we, do we realize the end really is how God makes us new, fashions us anew through the power of his grace through the gospel? And that's our goal. That's the goal of the psalm. That's going to be our goal. And this is the unity of the picture. Some say, well, it can't be the same psalm or the same author or the same constellation of ideas because the opening section refers to God as Elohim. And the latter section refers to God as Yahweh. Well, the reality of that is that, of course, God would be referred to as Elohim in a revelation that he gives that covers the entirety of the earth. Even people who don't seek him know him. They know him by the things he's made. Paul says the visible things of him from the creation are clearly seen, being made known by the things that are made, his eternal power and divinity, that they may be without excuse. Because knowing God, they know God. They glorified him not as God, neither gave him thanks, but became vain in their reasonings, their foolish heart was darkened. People don't make use of God's revelation. We don't make use of God's revelation as much as we should. We're responsible to take to heart this revelation. But God makes himself known to all people everywhere as God. That's the most expansive word that expresses deity, Elohim. And so even the people who know nothing of his promises in in Jesus know him in what he's revealed. Every speech, every language, hears the silent testimony of his grace and power in the things that are made. When it comes on to speak of the law, or the Torah, or the instruction, this is God's word to his covenant people. God gave his law to Israel on Mount Sinai. He gave his instruction to a people redeemed from Egyptian bondage, taken by eagle's wings and brought to himself. 
And so this is his covenant name. This is the name by which he is known by those who are the recipients of his redemptive purposes and plans. Ultimately, that redemptive purpose and plan needs to be made known to the nations as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, even as the, law, even as the preceding general revelation goes to the ends of the earth. Again, we don't go to the world with a message that has no relationship to anything they've ever known or seen before. The most benighted pagan has some concept of a God to whom they're accountable because God has made his word known in every nation of the world. But it's this word that's the saving, sanctifying, purifying, cleansing, mourning, building up and edifying and establishing God's people so that we may be blameless, as he says, innocent of great transgression, words of our mouths, meditations of our heart, all being conformed to his will and to his ways. And so there's tremendous unity of plan and purpose as this psalm is laid out for us. And then as we would conclude our thoughts this morning, just wanted to say uh, just a couple of things about the way in which this psalm really builds on the previous uh, concerns. Again, remember I said that the opening psalms from 3 to 14 are filled with adversaries, filled with humans who would kill the man if they could. They're after him. David's retreating from the presence of Saul. He's retreating from his son Absalom. Enemies, external foes of the full reality of what we find here. But it's in Psalm 19 we come to know the true nature of the greatest of all foes. And it's not external to us, it's internal. It's interesting that this section follows the fool who said in his heart that there is no God. It's a question of the heart. The fool is saying in his heart that there is no God. There may be some reason in his head that says, yeah, sure, there's a God. There must be a God. Things didn't come from nothing. There there must be a creator, a maker. Uh, There must be some designer who designs things that seem to give every evidence of design. There must be a God. But you see, the problem with the fool is, is that his heart says no God. No God to deal with. No God to account, give an account before. No God to honor. No God to glorify. It's the matter of the heart. But it's in this constellation of Psalms the heart is concerned with what God requires. Clean hands, a pure heart. To trust Him with the heart. To know Him vindicating us and enjoying His the relief of his grace from the heart victory that establishes the heart it's the heart that's the issue it's the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart being acceptable in your sight it's the victory of the inner life before any external victory is ever achieved or accomplished. It's the subduing of our sins. It's the subduing of our waywardness. It's the subduing of our unbelief. It's the subduing of our self-centeredness. It's the subduing of our pride. It's the subduing of our arrogance. It's the subduing of the thought that we can just go on alone and we don't need God or anybody to help us. We don't need God's people to encourage us and to pray for us. We can just 
know, fellowship to the winds and just think we're going to make it very far in the Christian life. It's God's word that shows us that none of that is true. If our hearts would be established, we need to be instructed. We need to be instructed by the God who is there, the God who is, and the God who speaks, who speaks in his creation, who speaks in his word, and who speaks to the end, that our hearts would be made right with him, our hearts would be obedient to him, in our hearts we would serve him with joy and gladness of our hearts. Well, that's where we want to go in our series of studies on Psalm 19. That's where I hope God will bring us more and more and more in the coming year so that there's still more to say, still more to know, still more to show forth, still more to seek. We're never in the place where we've said the last word. We've earned the last thing. There's plenty more in 2024. May God give us eyes to see it and a will to pursue it for His glory and our good. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time that we can share Your Word and look into it and glean from it these important emphases. We're thankful for these psalms. We're thankful for the book of the psalms and this particular constellation of psalms that um, do set out for us how much we need your word to direct us in our approach, in our trust, in our understanding of troubles and afflictions, that we would know the reality of your smile and vindication of your children and that we would know victory over all of our adversaries, particularly the victory of the inward adversary of our own heart's unbelief, our own coldness, our own evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, that, Lord, we would know your word as that great curative, that great property that heals, that great reality that makes whole. We ask you to be pleased to hear our prayers, to bless your people, not only for this Lord's Day, but in the Lord's Days that are to come throughout this year, that we might serve you with gladness and with joy of heart, that we might bear fruit in every good work. We might be ever-increasing in the knowledge of you, our God. We'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen.